0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm really happy to welcome Catherine Benton Cohen on this podcast today. Catherine is Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University, and her book, Inventing the Immigration Problem, The Dillingham Commission and Its Legacy, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2018. Inventing the immigration problem tells the story of the federal government's first major attempt to understand and control the mass migration that occurred in the early years of the 20th century. Benton Cohen describes how, in 1907, the U.S. Congress created a joint commission to investigate what many Americans saw as a national crisis, an unprecedented number of immigrants flowing into the United States. Experts, women and men trained in the new field of social science, fanned out across the country to collect data on these fresh arrivals. The trove of information they amassed shaped how Americans thought about immigrants, themselves, and the nation's place in the world. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Lori, for having me.
0: So as a way of beginning, I always like for um, the authors I interview to introduce themselves to our listeners for a bit. Um, I'd really like you to talk about your personal background and your professional background. Um, So tell us where you're from, where you went to school, who you worked with um, in terms of your, your mentors and advisors, and what has been your path to the career position that you have now?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I am originally uh, born and raised in Tempe, Arizona, which is the home of Arizona State University. So it's a suburb of Phoenix, but it's also a college town. And um, I think relevant to my interest in immigration, um, my mother and my grandfather grew up on the uh, Mexico border. Um, My mother grew up in El Paso, and my grandfather grew up um, in El Paso, Nogales, and Douglas, And he was the child of Eastern European Jewish immigrants who decided to settle on the U.S.-Mexico border. So um, I have an immigration history in my family. um, And also, it's a bit of an unusual one that I think has shaped my scholarship. It wasn't really intentional, but then I just realized that I kind of saw things literally from a different direction from a lot of other um, scholars in the field. And we can talk more about that if you want. Um, I went to Tempe High School and um I attended Princeton University for undergraduate. Um, and I took in the, my freshman year, um, I stumbled into a US women's history class taught by Elizabeth Lundbeck, my first semester of college, and I had never experienced anything like that and was amazed and fascinated. Took a wonderful seminar, freshman seminar on civil rights, the spring of my freshman year, and um I was hooked. And that's what made me a history major. And then I think demonstrating the importance of mentorship, after I finished a senior thesis, an undergraduate senior thesis in college, my advisor, Stephen Aaron... Told me that I should go to graduate school. And I had never thought of that. I didn't think of myself as professor material. I grew up in, as I mentioned, a college town, and I thought of that as, you know, other people's parents who had elbow patches on their jackets and whatever. Um, and he was right. When he explained history, graduate school, I thought it sounded perfect. I loved research. And I went to the University of Wisconsin for graduate school, and I loved it very, very much. Uh, My advisor was Linda Gordon, who at the time was working on what would become a very important book um, about Arizona called The Great Arizona Orphan Abduction. Uh, She's one of the foremost women's historians in the United States. She's now at NYU. Uh, Well, she just retired. But um, I was part of what then was called the U.S. Women's History Program, which was a PhD program in the history department, the first PhD in women's history in the United States, and so we were sort of a program within a program, which provided a lot of support and mentoring um, and peers. And um, I also worked closely with Bill Cronin when I was a graduate student. Now, this was all, of
0: course, a very long time ago. Wow! So, uh, tell me more about your the family's immigration history. Your family's immigration history, because that you said shaped how you kind of think differently about your work and, and your interaction with other scholars of immigration history, this field.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it shapes how I interact with them so much as, um, I didn't know that my family's story would impact how I thought about scholarship. It wasn't, um, planned. It wasn't one of these things where I was like, well, I'm going to research this story. Um, I actually, my dissertation and thus first book was about the history of race on the Arizona-Mexico border, um, a book that became, a, a project that became the book Borderline Americans um, about southeastern Arizona and its racial history. And it so happens that that's where my grandfather was born, but it's honestly not why I chose the region. And I always tell people, especially my students who have living grandparents, that I profoundly regret that I didn't ask my grandparents more questions Um, I wasn't interested in that story as a kid, which I think is common. Um, But now, of course, as a historian, there's so much I would have liked to talk to them about. Um, I guess what I mean is that, first of all, I never had the idea that Eastern European Jewish or European immigrants only settled in the Northeast, and um, secondly, I always knew that the U.S.-Mexico border was not just a story of sort of Anglos and Mexicans. And this is very relevant for my first book. But in a way, it also informs this new book, Inventing the Immigration Problem, because the Dillingham Commission, which was this study conducted by nineteen from 1907 to 1911 that you mentioned – is mostly associated with its study of Southern and Eastern European immigrants, which makes sense because that was the huge flow of immigrants from 1880 to 1924 when the quotas went into effect. But um, one of the things I quickly realized is that that story has mostly been told as if it was this sort of like lower east side, you know, uh, Pennsylvania steel mining maybe Midwestern story when in fact the commission was very interested in other regions of the country um, and was also in some ways um, inspired by conflict over Japanese immigration. And I think that my training in part as a Western historian, my position as a Westerner and my own family history helped me see that story that I just literally had a different perspective Um, there's one more thing I would add about that, that might unfold as we talk about the book, I actually found, um, well, I should add my grandmother, my maternal grandmother is also, was also the child of Jewish immigrants and they settled in Beaumont, Texas, which is on the Louisiana border. So they were Southern Jews. So again, neither of their stories match the kind of classic Ellis Island, lower East side story. And so I think that did help me see different things. But the other side of my family is, um, of Swiss German and very Puritan descent. And, um, about a year or two into this project, as I was looking at all these sort of expert elites studying immigrants, I found that my own biases were leaning too heavily towards immigrants. I don't mean that they shouldn't have been leaning toward them, but a historian also has to be fair. I often tell my students, right? We everyone strives for objective. We can't be objective. That's nobody is truly objective, but that we can certainly strive to be fair. And so I told myself this little story, which is probably true, actually, that the, my ancestors on the other side might have been on the other side of this question. And I owed them the same sort of respect about what their point of view was as I owed my immigrant side, if that makes sense. Now, having said that, I'll say they were all immigrants <laughs> at one point or another.
0: Right. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So in the time between your previous book, Borderline Americans, and then developing this project, what was your path to becoming interested in the Dillingham Commission and, and telling a a greater story about that?
1: Yeah, it's actually a pretty straight line. Uh, As I was doing the research for borderline Americans, I stumbled across the Dillingham Commission data, which is very well known, again, among immigration and social historians, because it's 41 volumes of data, much of it quantitative, but also some narrative reports that are tremendously interesting. And even though the data has been rightfully criticized tremendously for decades, almost since it emerged it's also one of the richest sources imaginable for social history in the 20th century, uh, early 20th century. And I actually just, you know, I came across the volume that was on um, the copper mining and smelting industries in the Southwest and um, looked up some data about Bisbee and Douglas, the the towns that I was researching in the copper industry in Southern Arizona. And um, one of the things that struck me is that they examined the wages of all of these folks from all these different countries um, in the smelter and mining industry. And there was this line in there that said something like, only racial discrimination can fully explain the disparity in wages. Now, I'm not quoting, but it was very close to that. And I was actually really shocked, right, to see this Federal Commission openly admit that. And by the way, that's very different than a lot of characterizations of the Dillingham Commission as sort of openly racist. And I was intrigued by that. But I also sort of dug a little deeper and I was like, holy cow, there's 41 volumes of stuff. This would be a really interesting project. And um, like I said, it had been written about most famously in the early 1950s by the um, Famous, informative immigration historian Oscar Handlin, who wrote um, a memo to a congressional, um, to a set of hearings in Congress about um, amending and eliminating the racist quota system that had been created in the 1920s. And, um, as I argue in the book, and as he argued, I'm not the first to say this, one of the Dillingham commission's most important effects is that it recommended the creation of a quota system. And he was saying, look, their bad data contributed to these bad quotas. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. I got stuck on that. Oh, oh, how I got from the one project to the next. Right. So people had written about it, but not much, not much, not as much. And not recently. There's one, um, Um, pretty short book by a guy named Robert Zidell. It's good. It was, it was absolutely um, vital for me and valuable. And he has been enormously generous um, with his research with me. Um, I think a model of scholarly generosity, given that I was writing on the same thing that he had written on, but I wanted to kind of look at it in a, in a broader way than his project was did. um, And also with a kind of new generation of scholarship. Anyway, and then I always tell people this story because I've gotten a lot of feedback from graduate students that this matters to them, especially female graduate students, that I had a number of different projects I was considering. And at that time, I was teaching at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and I got the job offer at Georgetown. And at the time, my older son was two and a half. And I realized that I needed a project that was federal, right? These were federal reports and they're all published and they're available online and they would involve the national archives. And that was a practical kind of project for me to do at that stage in my career and life. Um, And so, you know, you don't choose things in a vacuum. You have to choose things that are intellectually um, interesting to you, um, but they also have to be doable and while i vastly enjoyed roaming around um mine and ranch country in my pickup in my 20s um that wasn't really going to be an option for months on end um with a job and a family.
0: Mhm. Yeah, i'm just smiling on the other end here because it's not often that we hear, you know, people just kind of give the real talk about how they came to a project that it's as much about practicality and doability as it is about the vision you have and the you know, creative impulses that we have. So that's I think, a really important thing to mention. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that to your students. I think it's um, really, really significant to them and comforting as well. Um, so the Dillingham Commission, I mean, that's what I thought, what you said before about, you know, it hadn't been talked about in a while. and um, I thought it was interesting that you were reviving our conversation about it through this book. and You know, as somebody who works on immigration history, I thought I knew something of it. And I thought that little something I knew of it was enough. But after reading your work, it's just, I mean, it's vast. Like you said, it's over 40 volumes, um, tons of people. Committed their labor and their thinking and their different ideologies to this commission. So, for those listeners out there who are not so familiar with the makeup of who exactly formed the commission, could you talk a little bit about who was involved in creating it in the first place?
1: Absolutely. So, it was a joint commission. I'm told by the people that know a lot about these things that it's not technically a joint congressional commission because of something or other, but I don't know. For our purposes, it's basically a joint commission. And it was created by the Immigration Act of 1907, while President Theodore Roosevelt was in office. And that um, law did a few other things. Um, it raised the head tax but for immigrants. But the most important other thing that it did is it created the legal mechanism by which President Roosevelt could implement the Gentleman's Agreement, right, which limited um ended immigration of Japanese laborers to the United States. And that was largely a diplomatic agreement that he worked out with Japan. He needed one piece of legislation to complete it, which was a piece of legislation that allowed him to, um, uh, bar people carrying passports from certain countries. And it purposely didn't name the country so as to be diplomatic, but the country Involved was Japan. And um, this came about because after the San Francisco earthquake, um, the San Francisco school board sort of took advantage of the chaos and kind of racial animus unleashed after that event and announced that it was going to segregate Japanese school children into a so called oriental school. And um, here was a local action by a kind of populist, racist populist school board um, that really um, reverberated across. The globe and Japan was furious about this and complained uh, in a formal way. (laughs) And Roosevelt wanted to kind of tamp down the controversy. So he worked out this agreement where he got San Francisco to end this kind of segregation, but in exchange, Japan would stop sending these single um, laboring men. Why is this relevant to the commission? It's relevant because at the time, there's a little, you know, um, Schoolhouse Rock lesson. the House and the Senate had both passed the immigration bills, but one had a literacy test and one didn't for new immigrants and they couldn't agree in conference and they had been stuck in conference for six months. And so Roosevelt got his, Um, Got Henry Cabot Lodge, the sort of famous slash infamous senator who was on the committee, and Elihu Root, his diplomat, his chief diplomat, to go to the committee and say, look, take the literacy test out, substitute this commission that will study immigration, and then we can kind of punt on the literacy test, right? And this is something Congress often does where it says, uh, we don't really know the solution. To, uh, or we can't agree on a policy issue. So we're going to create a commission and study it, right? And so that's the origins of the commission. In terms of its demographics, it's very much a product of its time. It had nine commission members who were appointed, three by the president who were meant to be experts appointed by the president, three senators chosen by the vice president of the United States in his capacity as the president of the Senate, and three members of Congress chosen by um, the speaker of the house. And um, that's how it worked. So there were nine um, appointed members. Um They had various interests in immigration. I don't think I need to name them unless as they come up, except for the chair, William P. Dillingham, who was a senator from Vermont, a Republican who was kind of a moderate restrictionist and chaired the Senate Committee on Immigration. Um, There were a few Southerners. They were mostly Republicans, but there were a couple Democrats. And there were no women, which people might take for granted, although actually a couple of women were recommended. Um, I think they definitely there was a consideration of nominating a woman. And I bring that up because uh, one of the things I found by creating this big database of um, people who worked for the commission, this was a huge undertaking, it had over 300 employees. And I found that over half of them, at least 170 of them were women. And this included not just, you know, uh, low level clerks or typists, but also what they called calculators, which were basically women who worked the um, quantitative machines, um, the precursors, right, to, to Excel. <laughs> um, and as well as women who actually were agents out in the field interviewing immigrants, and some who wrote and compiled the actual reports.
0: Yeah, what I thought was fascinating was, you know, not just the sheer amount of people involved in creating the reports, but how many were women. And we'll definitely get to talking about um, specific women involved in the commission when we talk about um, your fifth chapter. Great. Um, Your your first chapter, like you said, this commission is a product of its time, um, which was the progressive era or what we think of as part of the progressive era in this. obsession or trend of employing experts or academics as well, you know, to kind of weigh in and um, create the data and the reports that justify, that go on to justify a lot of immigration policies. And the subject of your first couple of chapters, um, you kind of use this narrative technique of zeroing in on a particular person or particular people to kind of be the lenses through which we look at. Particular um, subjects that were approached in the commission and and the reports, right? So could you tell us a bit about um, the two kind of main characters of your first couple of chapters and uh, who are both academics in their own right, but from very different perspectives?
1: Yes. So the first chapter is called The Professor and the Commission. And it's about, um, a Cornell economist named Jeremiah Jenks, whom, um, some historians of social science and federal policy say was sort of the first academic federal expert, right? Like now we're used to this idea of an expert being hired for the, by the federal government to consult on something. And he was kind of the prototype for that. He had gotten to know Theodore Roosevelt when he was the governor of New York and Jenks, um, I think was a kind of interesting figure because he really, when I say was a prototype, he, he really was. And there were a lot of people like him. Um, He represented a way in which in the progressive era, expertise became highly valued and um, especially a certain kind of trained credentialed expertise, right? Historians often talk about the fact that the progressive era was the first sort of generation of professional social scientists. And it was kind of an era of professionalization in general, right? In the sort of turn of the century, let's call it 40 years, the American Bar Association, the American Medalist Medical Association, um, the um, professional organizations for historians, sociologists, political scientists, uh, economists, all got formed, right. And began to kind of differentiate from each other and, and, and delineate the kind of credentials you needed to call yourself those things. And one of the things that, you know, other historians have written about is that this was a way to sort of, especially like get women who couldn't go to medical school out of, you know, medicine, for example, but, Anyway, in it, the, the the profession or or field of social science really kind of came together in the early twentieth century. And it makes sense, right? It's the science of, of society and that matches the progressive era's interest in efficiency and expertise. Um, and organization and, and problem solving. And Jenks was trained, um, he was a Midwesterner, he was from Michigan, and he w- wended his way to graduate school um, in Germany. As many of this generation did, they got their PhDs in Germany, in economics or sociology. And he um, was actually the president of the American Economic Association. There were a lot of economists that worked on this commission. That's one of the things I learned is that um, that might explain why the commission really focused on um, what they saw as the economic impact of the immigrants. And we can talk more about that later. In any case, um, Jenks was appointed by Roosevelt. And although he wasn't the chair of the commission, he was clearly its most important member. He was meant to be the expert economist who kind of organized what they would study. He was very, very involved in an organization called... Um, the National Civic Federation, which was basically the first Republican think tank. And he had first gotten interested in immigration through his work at the NCF, uh, which was a really influential organization. It was absolutely a revolving door between um, Republican office holding and Republican policymaking. And um, So Jenks had actually, most of his background was in monetary policy and he had traveled the world already. He had been to a number of places um, to help implement the gold standard. He helped negotiate uh, the Boxer Rebellion indemnity in China. Um, And yet he was very interested in those issues and he kind of migrated toward immigration issues. Sorry for the pun there, not pun, but repeat words. And um, so I write about Jinx's influence on the commission and also the way in which because he's kind of this prototype, he was, um, he hustled right? He hustled his expertise. And so some traditional academic economists had no time for him. They felt he was far too focused on what they kind of derisively called practical skills, right? Um, but I think he genuinely saw, I think he, he liked the prestige of working for the government, but I also think he thought it was important. He believed in expertise in the government. Now, the second chapter is about largely about this really interesting figure named Yamato Ichihashi, who was among the first generation of Asian students to come to the United States to study. Now um, he had actually gone to high school in San Francisco around the time of the um, uh, controversy I mentioned with the San Francisco school board ends up attending Stanford as an undergrad. He's part of a small group of Japanese students who attend Stanford and he ends up um, working for the commission as an interpreter and um, field agent when they study the Japanese in California and the Pacific Coast states. And the reason I was able to find out about him is because... He went on to have a very illustrious career. He um, was mentored by the president of Stanford, David Starr Jordan, who incidentally was a very, very prominent eugenicist. Uh, many eugenicists actually like the Japanese. They considered them the most, quote unquote, superior of the Asian races um, in their terms. And uh, he ended up going to Harvard for graduate school. And he trained um, with, uh, among other people, Frederick Jackson Turner, the famous Western historian. He later went on to come back to Stanford and become a professor of Japanese history and Japanese American history. And Ichihashi became sort of the foremost historian, expert on Japanese Americans. And he was very optimistic about their relationship. And one of the things that I You know, I end that chapter with this really sad coda that in spite of devoting his career to sort of Japanese American improved relations, he, like every other Japanese American um, on the West Coast, was interned during World War II. And it really broke him. Um, He never wrote again. Uh, It's a very tragic story. Um, He also was invisible uh, to anybody else on the – who studied the commission until I was able to come across the payroll records in the three volumes on Japanese immigrants and Japanese and other immigrants in the Pacific coast states, That's actually the names of the volumes. They thank their Japanese students interpreters, but they don't name them in the volumes. But when I went and looked at the payroll records, that are archived at the Chicago Historical Society, I found these Japanese names. And so I was able to figure out who these students were. And I was able to trace him because he went on to have this very prominent career.
0: Yeah, the end of the chapter, the end of the second chapter is really heartbreaking, just because um, you kind of point out that right from the beginning, what the commission is basically doing is setting up this framework that immigration is a problem. It's the immigrant problem and immigration problem. And even though Ichihashi contributes so much knowledge um, and empathy and um, understanding of Japanese Americans in the United States, you know, a few decades later, we see this connection between the commission and internment, and it's really—I mean—it lends like a necessary darkness already. You know, in the beginning of the book, to to talking about the significance of the commission. That um, you know, looking back now, we can definitely see a line. But did people really anticipate, especially you know, um, Japanese and other racial minorities in their work for the commission, that they would then be victims of the? of the regulations that came from that information that they helped produce.
1: Right. And the other interesting thing is also one thing that I remember that my, in a very different context, but uh, one of my graduate mentors, the, you know, famous environmental historian, Bill Cronin, um, someone was asking him about how some people that are very different politics than him have used his work in particular kinds of ways. And what do you do about that? And he said, you can only do what you can, right? And then you just put it out there. Um, And in a way, that happened to the commission in the sense that the volumes on the Japanese are actually quite sympathetic to them. And the man uh, who wrote them, who was in charge of them, who was also an economist at Stanford at the time, he went elsewhere after that, was a guy named Henry Millis. And he was Ichihashi's sort of supervisor. And he supported naturalization for the Japanese, as did Theodore Roosevelt, um, as did, I think, a few other members of the commission. They believed that the Japanese had the right to naturalize, even though they supported continued Japanese exclusion, although not permanent exclusion, which is what happened later. But I think those sort of moderating voices got lost in the kind of scale Of the reports, right. As well as the ways that they became kind of easy cover, uh, for restrictionists later without people sort of sweating the details, if you will. So I actually think that a lot of people who worked with Ichihashi would have opposed internment, but I agree with you that the larger sensibility that the Dillingham commission really cemented that immigration is a problem contributed to the idea, of course, that internment was not acceptable, uh, policy.
0: Mhm. Yeah, what's really the what I think is such a huge contribution of your book is that it really tries to tease out that not everybody on this commission thought the same believed the same things that it is a multitude of voices and perspectives and that comes um across definitely in chapter 3 which is about um Jews in America and this debate that was taking place within the Jewish community, but also between people thinking and writing about um, whether we can consider the Jewish community uh, a racial community or simply a religious community. Can you talk a little bit more about what you discuss in that chapter?
1: Yeah. So that chapter is actually largely not about people on the commission or even, uh, well, a little bit studied by the commission, but it's about the sort of first group of Organized Jewish lobbyists in the United States, and um, many of the formative Jewish organizations in the United States were either organized um, or grew in their early 20th century to combat what they saw as increasing interest in passing restriction laws. And one of the main ones that I talk about here is American Jewish Committee, and um, These were largely, the activists were largely very assimilated Jews of German origin. And for those of your listeners who don't know much about um, the outlines of American Jewish history, there was a a sizable wave of Jewish immigrants who came in the mid-19th century as part of the wave of German immigrants. Many of them came at the same time as sort of the German 48ers, that is the folks who were kind of... Um, uh, displaced by the democratic upheavals of the mid nineteenth century, they and it's important I think for younger students to realize this. Who who hear about Nazi Germany, that was not nineteenth century Germany. There was obviously discrimination against Jews, but they were very assimilated into German culture in the nineteenth century. Many of these folks. Um, were highly educated and had become financially successful by the early 20th century, not all. And they saw themselves often quite differently from this incoming wave of so-called new immigrants from Eastern Europe who were Jews from what they call the Pale of Settlement, which is the region of Eastern Europe that uh, to which Eastern European Jews were restricted, um, who tended to be very poor um, and either very, very religious Orthodox Jews or sometimes, or both, uh, political radicals. And so this earlier generation of German Jews who were quite assimilated at first, so the traditional story is that they looked askance at these new immigrants, right? That they didn't want to be associated with this group that was very poor and very pious in ways that drew attention to them, right? But at the same time, they realized that sort of the writing was on the wall, and that um, immigration restriction attempts would eventually besmirch their own place in society as well. And I only just thought of this, this very moment, Lori, but I think there might be some parallels to Latino identity and Mexican and Mexican American identities in the Prop 187 years, right? I'm thinking of like, Walls and mirrors. I'm thinking of David Gutierrez's work and the ways, and then just, you know, the last 30 years of kind of making more concrete a Latino identity organized around the fact that whether you are a native born US citizen, whether you're, um, you know, a resident alien, whether you're undocumented, many people see you all the same way, right? And um, I think that Jews saw that and they also, many of these German Jews had really been trained in European Enlightenment ideas and ideas about equality. And they, um, the thing that, they, that the chapter's largely about is the protest of one guy in particular, um, a guy named Simon Wolf, who was a lawyer in Washington, D.C., who protested the use by the immigration um, Bureau, as well as by the Dillingham Commission, the use of the term Hebrew as a racial category rather than a religious category, and their argument was that no, in in a in a democracy with freedom of religion, nobody should be labeled in government documents by their religion. It smacked of discrimination uh, with as religion as race. It it smacked of discrimination. It reminded them of the ways that Russian Jews were singled out um, in the Russian Empire. And they also, interestingly enough, became some of the leading lobbyists, along with German newspapers, which I find really interesting, the leading lobbyists against the literacy test. And the reason that this is interesting is that the literacy test actually did not require immigrants to know English. It required them to know a language of their choice. And when it was finally passed after multiple attempts and over multiple presidential vetoes in 1917, it even allowed Yiddish. And the fact of the matter is that Jewish immigrants were highly literate. They needed men. They needed to be literate for their religious practice, which involves reading Torah. So German activists, I'm sorry, Jewish activists knew that most Jews would actually pass the literacy test. Yet they lobbied against it anyway, because they realized that it represented a kind of opening wedge into larger restrictions. And they were right.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I thought that chapter was, it's so important um, in so many ways. And I was thinking the exact same thing, the parallels with Latinos, um, especially after, you know, a big kind of influx, um, of immigration with the Bracero program in the forties and then undocumented immigrants in the fifties, when those start to be, um, looked at as the new kind of bringers of infection and, um, and labor displacement and all of that, that it's the same kind of old versus new, um, and the, the collapsing of all of these different identities into one and the fear of that, the fear of losing whatever tenuous status you had because of a new wave of, of newcomers. Right. Um, definitely, definitely the same. Um, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation that the, the way in which you can sort of draw a line between your previous book and this one is that you came across this volume about um, immigrants in the mining industry. And you said that this was a part of you know, a lot of studies about immigrants in various industries that the commission undertook, in creating all of these reports. And that's the subject of chapter four, um, when you talk about how massive an undertaking this was, and that it was spearheaded by one person in particular who was looking at um, the working class immigrant and how perhaps new waves of immigrants were contributing to worsened labor conditions, um, for Americans or many Americans. Um, could you talk a little bit more about who that person was and what was the result of the survey taking that he was doing in working class immigrant communities?
1: Yes. And I want to thank you, Lori, again, because it's so, um, What's the word? Delightful and satisfying to hear someone has read my book and is sort of digesting it and and talking it back to me. And you characterize that exactly right. So the next chapter is about the most important and largest parts of the reports, which was 20 volumes on immigrants and industry. So fully half of the volumes which were this incredibly massive, massive study of immigrants in almost every industry imaginable. Um, and they were compiled and overseen by this really young guy. who was in his mid-20s named W. Jetlock, and he was kind of a, a protege. Uh, protege of a number of older economists who worked on the commission and Jenks, I think he, he found his way to the commission because of a former professor at, um, his undergraduate university. Um, but he was sort of taken under the wing by Jenks. And, um, eventually basically quickly moved up the ranks and was hired to be in charge of this immigrants and industry study. And he had started graduate school at the university of Chicago, which was one of these very important early economics programs in the United States. Um, but he actually didn't even finish. Um, so he didn't even have a PhD. Uh, I'm not even sure he got his master's degree to tell you the truth. Um, and yet he was in charge of all of this and the There were many PhDs who worked for the commission. That's why I mentioned that, not because I'm myself fetishizing the PhD. Um, And in fact, uh, one of my takeaways of this book is to be pretty skeptical of experts, even though I have a PhD, and so do you. Um, Or maybe because of that. I don't know, right? Like, I I know to be skeptical because I am a PhD. In any case, um, so Jetlock was this young man. He'd grown up in West Virginia. He was a newlywed. Um, He was from kind of classic old stock uh, ancestry that had come in the 18th century um, as his his wife's ancestors. They were sort of a a solid German and and Scots-Irish stock, the two of them. And he started his study of immigrants and industry. Um, I use his study of Johnstown, Pennsylvania as an example, because he went there and his, his papers are at the University of Virginia. And he has these postcards to his wife where he talks about how miserable those conditions are there. Um, The immigrants and industries reports have attracted the most critical attention um, in the commission. Uh, This um, economist who himself was a, a Jewish emigre named Isaac Horowitz was actually hired Uh, by the Jewish lobbyists in 1912 to read the advanced copies of the commission reports and to make a critique of them. And he made a critique that has really stood the test of time, which is that um, because those industry reports divided um, their subjects into old immigrants and new immigrants, and the old immigrants were, you know, the German and Irish of the mid 19th century. And the new immigrants were these Eastern and Southern Europeans that excited so much concern among reformers that They didn't take into account duration of settlement, and if you had taken, say, an Irishman who came in 1900 and you compared him to a Slav who came in 1900, they would be doing about as well, right? And so um, uh, Jetlock's studies have rightfully come in for a lot of criticism, but I also think that they have been misinterpreted as eugenicist. And I I think that's really important. A lot of scholarship insists that the Dillingham commission was deeply eugenicist. And there are certainly volumes that are infused with what we would understand to be eugenics. There's a volume on the fecundity of immigrant women, right? Which is all about that they have really high birth rates and this is a problem because it's going to undermine the racial stock of the United States. But Locke was a figure that made this story more complicated for me because he grew up in a town very similar to the towns that he was studying. And his father had been the station master at their B&O railroad stop and when he described these towns that had hundreds and sometimes thousands of new immigrants um largely slavs in the in the mining regions of uh, i'm sorry in the iron and steel and mining industries of the kind of pennsylvania pittsburgh west virginia you know region these were totally transformed places, right? And people were living in immense poverty and they had terrible public health issues because the towns where they lived did not maintain the communities, these sort of makeshift camps where they were set up. And I thought Locke was interesting because while I disagreed with his recommendations, which was that we should restrict immigrants because of these poor conditions, I was sympathetic to his concern over their conditions. And he actually, what really struck me is that he tended to criticize local leaders and bosses as much as he did the immigrants themselves, which is to say, he didn't say that Slovenians were naturally sloppy and disease-ridden. He said, civic leaders are not incorporating them into the communities. They're, co- they're charging them poll taxes like African-Americans in the Deep South. They charge them exorbitant license taxes for their businesses that they can't afford. They're enforcing no liquor law, you know, no liquor blue, blue laws on Sundays that the immigrants don't understand. Um, they're not uh, putting in sewer systems in their new neighborhood. And as a result, they're not assimilating, but it's as much the town leaders and the bosses' fault as it is theirs. However, his solution was essentially right to blame the victim in the sense of saying, well... I'm not going to make the civic leaders clean up their act because I don't think I can do that. And I can't, on this commission, force bosses to to create a minimum wage. So instead, the only way that I think that I can improve the so-called American standard of living, which was the objective measure, he so-called objective measure that he tried to use to say, you know, these new immigrants are undermining American uh, standard of living by accepting low wages and living in poor conditions – he knew it wasn't entirely their fault, but he said, well, the solution is just restrict their numbers. And while I find that solution unacceptable, I also think that's a very different thing than saying these people are racially inferior.
0: Right. And wasn't he also the one to kind of critique not only people in positions of authority, but you know, quote, regular Americans themselves, that they really showed a lot of indifference.
1: Yes. He was very critical of local people and said that they weren't doing their civic duty to incorporate these new neighbors into their communities and their churches and so on. And he actually went on to become what I call a kind of Christian syndicalist. Um, He ended up, um, he's almost unknown except for the historian Leon Fink actually has a chapter about him in a book that came out almost 20 years ago about kind of democratic uh, labor thinkers. And, um, later in his career, Jetlock became, um, United Mine Workers president, John Lewis's right-hand man. And, um, He proposed the Living Wage Campaign that became central to pushing FDR from the left to address um, labor laws and minimum wage. And so he went on to have this really important career that was much more about supporting the rights of labor than it was about criticizing immigrants.
0: Yeah, this book is full of, you know, these figures that I had never heard about before, but who have incredibly interesting stories and careers. And you really give us a sense of them as people, not only during the time of their work in the commission, but also what ends up happening to them afterwards. Yeah. Um, And the next chapter is you know, filled with, this is a chapter I've been wanting to to talk about. I just think it's one of my favorites in the book, which is about women. Um, And these multiple interesting women who did a lot of important um, legwork in producing reports about different conditions, including conditions in steerage Mm -hmm. for people journeying on ships for prostitution, um, white slavery, and also this debate taking place um, around, you know, should women, especially women workers have some protective legislation or should they um, not have that? So could you talk a bit about some of the women involved in the commission that you discuss in this chapter?
1: Yes. And first I'll tell a funny story by way of making a historical point. Um, The first – a couple months ago, I was giving kind of my first talk since the book was done about it, right, in this kind of informal seminar setting at a university, go unnamed, and um, I was talking about the women on the commission as well as sort of the economist angle, et cetera, and this gentleman raised his hand and he said, okay, he was like, wait, is this book about women or is this book about the commission? And I was like, yes, yes, it is both those things because women were involved in the commission. That's all I'm saying. You didn't ask me if it was about men or the commission. And in fact, you know, I don't even really like that. I have like the woman chapter. Uh, But it was so important, of course, I had to do it. But um, the larger point I want to make about that irritating anecdote is that one of the reasons why I am a historian of the progressive era is that women are everywhere in the progressive. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, everywhere all the time, but, When people write about the progressive era and they don't include women, voters, policymakers and workers, they're actually actively obscuring the reality of the progressive era, right? Like it is not an add women and stir to use the classic formulation of the pioneering historian Gerda Lerner about sort of early phase women's history. You cannot understand the progressive era unless you take women seriously. They are involved, in many ways, more so than they would be by, say, the 1950s. So people love to hear about the women on the commission. And they're like, oh, it's so great you unearth them. And I'm like, they were right there all along. Like, they were authors of reports. You know, this is not me having to completely reinvent the archive, which is, I think, really important to underscore to people, they are right there. Now, having said that, I did do some interesting digging around and found out more. Um, Yeah, so one who I think her work was pretty well known, um, as it goes, was this woman named Anna Herkner. Her background story is incredible, though. Anyway, she wrote, she was the head of this report on uh, on, um, steamship conditions, as you mentioned, and what it was like to Go in steerage class. And essentially what she, she goes undercover, I think, six times pretending that she's a peasant. And she can do this because she's of uh, Bohemian Czech descent and grew up in this Bohemian Czech settlement in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Who knew? I didn't. Um, and um, had run a uh, settlement house in Baltimore and was a Slavic language literature major at Berkeley. Anyway, she and her staff dressed up undercover as as peasants. And what they described was basically what we would call sexual harassment and assault now, right? Just completely rampant, which is really not surprising when you think about it, the vulnerability of these folks. Um, So that work was really interesting. And then the person that I did on earth that I feel like was a good piece of detective work on my part was this Mary Philbrook. And one of the most important reports by the commission was its report on white slavery, right? Which was what we would call sex trafficking now, which was the subject of enormous interest in the early 20th century. as kind of an international movement against this uh, white slavery um, industry. And, Mary Philbrook actually wrote that report anonymously because she and her agents, they were concerned about retaliation from kind of criminal underworld, right? And so um, while her papers, which are pretty much impossible to get at the New Jersey Historical Society, they actually do mention that she had this role. Nothing in the commission reports or records says anything about it because she was kept anonymous. So sort of publicizing her role to me is really important because her background is completely fascinating. And I won't have time to talk about the other chapters, but I will just finish out about Mary Philbrook because she was the first female lawyer in New Jersey because she actually had to have a piece of legislation passed for her to become a lawyer because the Bar Association barred women. She did that. She was an active member of the Republican Party and later joined the National Women's Party, which was the kind of hardcore egalitarian wing of the suffrage movement. And um, so this is a woman who brought a lot to the table and was a really interesting figure. Um, The other uh, person that I think you're alluding to who's really, really fascinating is this woman, Juliet Points, who was, I think, a Midwesterner, if I recall correctly, who went to Barnard College, right, the women's branch of Columbia, was valedictorian at Barnard, had started a suffrage and feminist club. She gets a job with the commission. And she is one of the only women that I have records of what she thought about it. And she wrote to her like alumni newsletter five years later about basically how these immigrants had changed her life. And she kind of was what was popularly known at the time, right? This is the origins of the term slumming. She really liked hanging out with the immigrants. Like there's some kind of condescending, like she thought they were more authentic and blah, blah, blah. But she goes on first to work for one of the leading women's trade unions in the United States um, doing education programs. And then she later helps find found the Communist Party of the USA. And in the 1930s, she goes to the Soviet Union as this kind of acolyte, and she gets disillusioned. And when she comes back, she's disappeared. And it's widely assumed among historians of the Communist Party that she was killed by Soviet
0: secret police. The end. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Just these biographies are so fascinating I mean really really fascinating Thank you. I mean all these people that I that I didn't know about before um, and you know as somebody who you know started out um, graduate school just like with this love of women's history I just especially love this chapter and the attention you give to all the different issues that women are involved in talking about and writing about in, in these reports um, in the last two chapters, you know your chap- your sixth chapter, um, the penultimate chapter is about who people would probably consider the most well-known figure in this history, or who yes. most people would be like, oh, I know that name, who, you know, Boaz. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the final chapter is about um, immigrants and uh, the Reconstruction South, um, and why the South was perhaps open or embracing of a particular type of immigration that might be surprising to people. Mm -hmm. So in discussing these last two chapters to wrap up, could you um, tell us a little bit about what surprised you in the research and the writing of these last two chapters?
1: Certainly. So quickly... And I would—I know this is about me talking about the chapter, so I'm curious to see what you think about the Boas chapter. So basically, I do—he's very famous. Franz Boas is probably the form, you know, the most famous anthropologist ever. What he's known for is um, his—well, he trained Margaret Mead. He, but what he's known for is his reputation is as an anti-racist. That he was basically the person that created in the United States the idea of cultural relativism. um, And he became a very active anti-Nazi activist late in his life and career. He himself was a German Jewish immigrant. But that is not the part of him that I emphasize in this book, which is that he was hired by the commission to do a study of um, immigrants and their children's bodies and heads. This is not phrenology, right, where you like, study the bumps in someone's heads to like tell their future or whatever. This is um, what was called anthropometry or anthropometry. I don't know how they said it, but basically this is physical anthropology. And the thing is that he is interesting because he was hired by the commission, but he in many ways represents everything the commission is supposedly not about, right? He becomes this um, advocate for immigrants. He does not believe in racial difference, blah, blah, blah. But the point that I want to make, and it actually kind of shores up the larger argument that I'm making here about eugenics is really quite undeveloped in the years that the commission is doing this work, is that he is arguably one of the people on the commission most involved with the eugenics movement. in it's very early years. It's very important that, you know, historians like people just now we see eugenics as sort of junk science, but it was science in the early 20th century. Right. This was a new scientific method. And he was a scientist. That's the way he thought of himself. And he was like, well, I'm going to check it out. And like, I'm going to see if we can figure out if there's racial difference by measuring bodies and whatnot. And he later breaks with the eugenics movement because basically he's like, yeah, I tested this and nope, you know. Um, But in the early years, he he corresponded with them. And, you know, so for me, what's interesting about him is like now most of us would reject the premise that studying people's bodies would be a way to even engage the question of racism, we would be like, I reject that, right? Like, I'm not going there. And he did that. But anyway, the upshot is that he said that uh, we shouldn't restrict immigration, because when immigrants come to the United States, their bodies and minds improve. And so it's a good environment for them. And so it's all fine. Because even if they had problems before, the US is good for them. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but that was essentially his uh, argument. And that was important. Um, but he also used all kinds of coercive methods, which were typical of the era, to measure these folks, especially schoolchildren. He tried to get access to school children's bodies to measure them and weigh them and look at them um, without their parents' consent. And I know it was a different era. And a lot of people have pushed back on various... Book, versions of this chapter right that I was too hard on him so I tried to lighten it up a little and I tried to put it into context but he knew he was subverting consent and uh, it's funny because my mother is reading the book right now and she said I'm almost finished she's like but that Boaz guy that guy guy really made me mad and I thought well I must have been influenced by my mother's views right it's very telling that my mother was also annoyed by that I was like hmm okay you know you, you bring what you bring right so um I'm intrigued and I can't wait to hear more about what people think about the Boas chapter as more people read this. Um, The last chapter, so I guess I was surprised. I didn't know that much about Boas, but I was surprised at how irritated I was with him. Um, The last chapter actually did not surprise me that much for a personal reason, but I think it's very surprising to other people. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback that they find it really fascinating uh and this is the story of this um mississippi planter very 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 prominent southern planter kind of the classic mold um named leroy percy who um tried this experiment in the early 20th century to recruit Italians to replace black sharecroppers on plantations in the Mississippi Delta. In this case, one called Sunnyside that's on the Arkansas side of the Delta. And um, the reason why I was not surprised is because I lived in Louisiana for four years and I knew about this sort of rich Italian heritage along the Delta. And I also knew about Leroy Percy because he later becomes famous because in the 1920s, he and his son are involved in fighting the Klan. Um, they're kind of classic elite bourbons. And, um, so I knew a little of this backstory having, uh, lived in Louisiana. Um, and that story became better known after Katrina, um, because there were comparisons to the Mississippi river flood of the 1920s and he and his son were very involved in it. Um, So anyway, but it is very interesting because he tries to bring Italians to replace African-Americans at a time when other people are trying to restrict immigration. The South is the last region to support immigration restriction. And that is sort of counterintuitive to a lot of people and interesting. But he also ends up. Basically that the Senator from Mississippi dies and he gets appointed by the state legislature to replace him. He gets named to the Senate in 1910. And then he's friends with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, in fact, he took Teddy Roosevelt on the hunting trip where Teddy Roosevelt famously saves the little bear cub that becomes the teddy bear. Love that piece of trivia. And I know I just was like, that's too good to be true. Um, and um, Percy gets named to the Dillingham Commission by Roosevelt. I mean, crazy, crazy. After he's been investigated by this intrepid woman lawyer, uh, to, of, of being involved in debt peonage of basically forcing these immigrant laborers to work on his plantations. And the, the um results of that are kind of um equivocal, but it is curious that he ends up getting to be on this commission after all of that
0: right yeah, i I definitely um think that these last two chapters are really, really fascinating, and I agree with you that they they will provoke like different reactions in people, um, mm-hmm. whether it's surprise or irritation, (laughs) um, annoyance, or, you know, just like really being illuminated, um, about some of these things to wrap up. I want to just end with a final question to you, um, that, um, hints towards what you put in your epilogue. Um, the epilogue, you basically kind of give us, um, a brief, scan of the different types of immigration related legislation that happened after the Dillingham commission is closed up, the reports are done. Um, And at the end, you say that this study has been a necessary history of the present. And it's also a cautionary tale. Um, Would you just end by saying a few words about that statement?
1: Yes. The main arguments that I make in the book are One, that the commission cemented this idea of immigration as a problem, a policy problem that the federal government must fix. And um, as you know, as a fellow historian of immigration, just briefly, that this is the era in which. It's just beginning to be federal control of immigration, right? And the idea that the federal government can have the power and capacity to enforce immigration is a really largely untested idea until the 1880s, and remains questionable and, and highly controversial into the early 20th century. And so the commission giving the gravitas, the expertises, the experts' seal of approval to this massive expansion of immigration and border enforcement, we're still living with the consequences of that today. And we ought to remember that that was an invention of an era that believed kind of unquestioningly in experts and social science and government. And we don't actually still have those beliefs today. But what we have is this massive, massive enforcement leviathan that is a product of their era. Now, I'm not saying that they envisioned anything like we have today, actually, but that they set into motion the idea that the federal government should conceptualize immigration as a problem, and that they basically have carte blanche power to quote unquote, solve it any way they want. And that is definitely, definitely shaping our our present and in really deeply disturbing ways. And this idea that the there's limitless power of the federal government over immigrants and potential immigrants and border enforcement um, has become so uh, commonsensical that, you know, I, I have this quote from Steve Bannon when he still worked for President Trump, in which he basically, like, in one breath says – we need to dismantle the administrative state. And then in the next breath says, and we need to have complete border enforcement. Hello, those are the same. <laughs> that, that, that should be nonsensical to us, right? Those two things together. Um, and yet it's become this sort of untouchable. And I, I think that's largely because it was naturalized as a kind of necessary consequence of the recommendations that the commission Made and again, it's not an absolutely straight line. But just to review, the two main things that the commission recommended were a literacy test, which was eventually implemented. That's changed in sixty-five, but it did create like this idea of certain standards about quality of immigrants. And then the second thing was that they were the first large-scale, the first serious recommendation of a quota system, a quantitative limit on immigrants. And before that, there hadn't been such a thing. And so we still inhabit that mindset. some deeply deleterious ways.
0: Yes, definitely a significant takeaway from this book that will have an effect not only on you know people like me who already work on immigration history, but people who are generally interested in our immigration um, situation today, the debates around immigration today, will definitely um, want to check out this book. Katie, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. I really appreciate it.
1: Lori, thank you so much.
0: Thank you all for tuning in to New Books in History. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this podcast episode, and we have just heard from Catherine Benton Cohen about her new book, Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy, recently published by Harvard University Press. I invite you to like and follow our New Books in History social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you for listening.